Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Rest of us, go ahead and get your Bible open to Nehemiah chapter number 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. We're continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and we're going to be in chapter 2 uh, down into chapter 3 this morning. Uh, but we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter number 2. <clears throat> I mean, I really uh, enjoy the stage of life uh, that April and I are in uh, as parents right now. Uh, I probably enjoy this stage more than any other stage of life. Now, I've said that during every stage of life. When the kids were infants, like, oh, this is the best stage. When the kids were toddlers, like, oh, this is the best stage. When they were, you know, preschool, all oh, this is the best stage. When they're in, you know, early elementary, all oh, this is the best stage. The older they get and the more I look back, I realize those stages stunk. And these stages are pretty good. I'm really looking forward to the empty nest stage. April's not. Uh, whenever we talk about, uh, you know, kids growing up and moving out, she's all sad. Like, I wish they would stay here forever. And I'm like, not me. I can't wait for them to get up, get married, get out of my house and, you know, and then she's like, well, I hope they live right next door and have 10 kids and we can have the grandkids all the time. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Have you seen Ron and Reggie, what happens when the grandkids live next door? You do not want that, woman. Uh, but So I, I really enjoy uh, this stage of life. But I, I remember when we had three, you know, really young kids at home. Our house was, was basically controlled chaos. You know, we had Parker, we had Parker by ourselves, you know, he was our only child for about six years. And, you know, he, we had tried for him for several years, and so when we finally had Parker, man, we just, we, we loved every part of it. I remember when he would wake up in the middle of the night, uh, we would race to see who could get him first. Now, I couldn't feed him, but I wanted to help. I wanted to, well, I'll change his diaper, I'll do whatever, and I, we just, we loved that. And then he became, you know, a little toddler toddling around and man we love that and then he became a young young you know preschool we started to teach him to read we love that but it was it was two against one so we could control that you know two adults trying to take care of one small child it was it was pretty it was okay it was fine when parker was six years old we had connor and that was that was doable again because at that point parker was he was older he was more self-sufficient he didn't rely on us for everything he could feed himself. He could dress himself. Not well all the time, but he could. Uh, he, could he, he could use the bathroom by himself. He could read by himself. Now, we actually have a, a picture of him uh, using the bathroom, reading the funny papers to prove that he could do both at the same time. Uh, but he was in, he was in kindergarten, uh, and Connor was, you know, of course, as an infant, they need you for everything. You know, all Connor did when he was born, as a newborn, was eat, sleep, and poop. And he needed us for all of it. Now, he pooped on himself, all by himself, but we needed, he needed us to clean him up. He needed us to feed him. He needed us to, to help him sleep, to swaddle him, to bathe him, to dress him. He needed us for everything. But again, Comp Parker was older, so it, was, it wasn't as, as bad. We had one older kid who was, could take care of himself, and one newborn, he needed us for everything, and we were two you know, capable adult, so it wasn't too terrible. 20 months later, Alexis came along, and all that went out the window. We had another newborn who needed us for everything, and we had a 20-month-old who needed us for a lot. You know, he could feed himself as long as it was mushed up and just spread in front of him, and he could just shove it in his face. He wasn't potty trained, so we were still dealing with that. He could walk, kind of. But you, you know how, if you've ever had to take kids, you know how a toddler is when they're first beginning to walk. They look like a, a drunk guy walking around, and you're worried about them bumping into everything. And then they're crawling, and you're like, you're going to put everything in their mouth. And so we're, we're, we're freaking out that Connor's going to put just a Lego that Connor Parker has left in the floor in his mouth and choked to death. We're having to take care of Alexis the entire time. And it's just, it's, it's controlled chaos. And then I remember at this stage we had... You know, about a 20-month-old, a newborn, and Parker, who was about seven or eight at this time, we had a birthday party for him. And we invited all his friends over. And this, again, we're in Bible college now. 
So we're in Bible college. We invite all his friends over. So we have a trailer full, not a house, a trailer full of eight-year-olds with their, with their siblings. And all their siblings were younger than them. So we got a house filled with newborns to eight-year-olds, and it is just, it is a madhouse. People are crying, people are screaming. You know, parents are there saying, don't do that. I'm there like, hey, stop jumping on the bed. Hey, get off the roof. It is just, it is a madhouse. And it was, it was, it was crazy. Now, as time went on, things got easier. Connor learned to dress himself. He still doesn't do it well, but that's because he's colorblind. But he learned to dress himself. He learns to, he can take care of himself. Now, Lexi, she began to grow up and, and do things. And so now, when we go home, we still have three children living at home, but they don't really need us for anything. They could, they could, if need be, survive on their own, as long as we're paying the bills and buying them food. But they can cook the food. You know, we don't have to make sure they, you know, we can, they can cook the food on their own. They can clean their, their room on their own. They can wash their own clothes. Now, if, I don't know if they would if we weren't there to make them, but they can do it. They can survive. And so our house is, is pretty calm. Most days, you know, Lexi's upstairs doing her thing. Connor's downstairs doing his thing. Parker's in his room doing his thing. Me and April are free to do whatever we want. And it's peaceful. It's quiet until Connor and Lexi cross paths, and then it's just fighting for no reason whatsoever. They're just yelling at each other because they breathe the same air. But generally, it's calmer. And that's, that's what's supposed to happen. Because as they grew, they began to mature. They learned things. They changed how they did things. And that's what's supposed to happen. Kids are supposed to grow up. They're supposed to mature. If you're a parent, your job is to train your children to one day not need you. To one day survive on their own. So you can retire and, like I plan to do, move to Florida and not tell your kids where you are. Tell them, you want to talk to me, you can Facebook message me. I'm not giving you my address. I'll come visit you. You don't come visit me because I don't want your grandkids at my house. Unlike April, who's like, bring them all the time. So we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But as a parent, your job is to train your kids to grow up and mature and not need you. And it makes life easier on you. And here's the thing. No matter how old you are here this morning, whether you're a young kid, whether you're a teenager or a preteen like Alexis, or whether you're like Danny and you're vintage. We'll call you vintage. Not old, not antique, vintage. No matter how old you are, you still should be maturing. You still should be growing, specifically in your walk with God. We never stop growing in our relationship with God until... We open our eyes in heaven one day and see Jesus face to face. Once you have crossed over death and you see Jesus face to face, or once Jesus returns and sets up His earthly kingdom, then you can say, I've arrived as a believer. But until then, we should constantly be growing and maturing in our walk with God. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 28, right before He ascended. He says, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things as I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Amen. Jesus, in what we call the Great Commission, did not tell us to go and make converts. He told us to go and make disciples. And there's a difference between a convert and a disciple. See, our goal as evangelical believers is not just to go out and show people their need of salvation and, and witness their new birth and then leave them there. Our job is to witness their new birth 
and then help them as they grow and mature in Christ. Look, there is nothing more exciting than a newborn baby. And no matter what age you are, no matter what stage. Now, right now, the way me and April are, if we were to have a newborn baby, I would be very depressed. But you can have them, and I'll come visit you at the hospital. I'll come goo goo gaga over that baby. You know why? Because I'll, I'll cuddle that baby, and I'll love that baby, and I'll kiss that baby. When that baby stinks, I give it back to you, and I go home. Uh, but, you know, there's nothing exciting as a newborn baby going and seeing the new life and, you know, watching them grow and watching them experience new things and learn new things. And it's the same with a new babe in Christ. See, most Christians believe even evangelism is just getting someone saved and leaving them. Now, how many of us, what would you think of someone who had a baby, had a newborn baby, witnessed that new birth and then just left that baby on the street to grow by themselves. That's a, that's a terrible person. Can we all agree with that? If someone were to have a baby and leave it on the street to fend for itself, we would all agree that person needs to go to prison. That person needs to be punished for their actions. But we as believers do the same thing to new converts all the time. We witness, we see them get saved, we witness this new birth, and then we're like, okay, great, you're, you're a newborn baby in Christ now, good luck. And we leave them to fend for themselves. See, God doesn't want us to just make converts. He wants us to make disciples, to watch and help as people as they mature in Christ. That is called discipleship. And that is the goal of the Christian faith, to watch and help people as they become mature believers in Christ. Because here's the thing, as you are helping someone and guiding someone as they mature in Christ, you're maturing in Christ as well. You're growing. See, spiritual growth usually happens like physical growth. And here's what I mean by that. You don't notice day by day when your kids are growing. When your kids are growing... Now look, I can look back at pictures of our kids and say, man, they have grown up a lot. You know, every day I get that Facebook memories thing where it's like on this day you posted this and I'll look back at pictures of me and the kids and I'll see Alexis when, when she was sweet and kind and loved her dad. And I think, oh man, look at that little girl with that Kool-Aid mustache and that pink pap pop gun just smiling and cuddling her daddy. And, and man, she sure has grown. But I didn't notice it every day as she grew. Now, Connor I do because one day he was five foot, the next day he was six foot four, uh, like a giant. But no, we don't notice day by day as our kids grow up, you know, fraction of an inch by fraction. But we know that we can look back and say, man, they sure have grown. That's the same way with our spiritual growth. You don't notice day by day how you're growing in your relationship with God, but you, should, you will notice if you're not doing it. There are ways for us to look at ourselves and judge whether we are maturing in Christ or not. That's one of the reasons I wanted to focus on the book of Nehemiah, because the book of Nehemiah really gives us a roadmap to a mature relationship with God. It gives us kind of the, the foundation of what a maturing, growing relationship with God looks like. We can, we can look at the things in, in Nehemiah that we're taught and we can look at ourselves and say, okay, based on what the Bible teaches there, am I maturing in Christ or not? We saw in the first week that one of the, the signs that we are maturing in Christ is our heart of compassion. God desires us to have a heart that breaks over the pain of other people that sees the hurt of other people, especially other brothers and sisters in Christ, and we don't, we don't judge them, we don't condemn them, we are heartbroken because of what they're going through. We are in pain because of what they're dealing with. But that, that it just, just, doesn't just stop there. That pain leads us to prayer to praying big block prayers. God, get involved in this situation. And God, they need you, God. Lord, I need you, God. And we just we, we dedicate time to just get alone with God and speak to God one-on-one -on -one about these things that are on our heart. But then also, we have these short block prayers where throughout the day we say, God, I talked to you about this. I need your help right now. 
Lord, I'm struggling right now. I need your help right now. We we have a a time where we're spending one-on-one time with God, but then we're having short conversation with God throughout the day. We need both of them to grow in our relationship with God. We need both of them to grow in spiritually. Now, these are just elementary ideas. These are foundational thoughts of Christianity. Compassion. Having a relationship with God. That's how we begin to grow. That's where we begin to mature. But it has to move on from there. And we're going to look at that today. So look at Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to start in verse number 6. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come unto Judah. And a letter unto Ashpath, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Now look, that is a, that last statement, you know, God's hand was on me. That is the understatement of the century. Remember, from Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah, he hears about how Jerusalem's walls are burned down, how the gates are destroyed, how the city is without protection, and how the people are suffering, and he is heartbroken. Now, who did this to the city was the Persian Empire, the empire that he is serving. Now, the king he's serving wasn't the one that did it, but it was his granddaddy, or his great-granddaddy. It was his kingdom that did this to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah begins to pray. He fasts day and night and he prays and he prays as God, give me, give me the courage to do something. Lord, give me the, the means to do something. Then he goes with the king and the king's like, why are you so sad? He goes, well, I'm sad because your kingdom destroyed Jerusalem and I see how bad it is. Can I go and repair it? Now, he is the king, king's cupbearer. He's got a good job, a good position. But he's going before the king and basically saying, hey, you remember that city that your, your kingdom destroyed about 150 years ago? Can I go back and rebuild it? But then he gets even bolder. Can you give me the materials I need to rebuild the city your kingdom destroyed? And the king says, sure, no problem. Take all the time you need. Here's the letters you need to make sure you have safe travels. Here's the letters you need to get the materials you need to rebuild the city that my kingdom destroyed. Without hesitation. So Nehemiah says, well, of course, God, God's hand is upon me. But he had the boldness to ask this because he, rem- he knew the Bible. He had faith in the truth of the Word of God. And he knew that the Bible, that God had promised, Nehemiah, if my people were turned back to me, I will restore them. I will return to Jerusalem. I will rebuild the walls. So he knew, hey God, you used this kingdom to give punishment to Israel for their rebellion. I'm sure you're going to use this kingdom to restore Israel like you promised that you would. Now, let's keep reading in verse number, uh, chapter 2, verse number 9. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sembalat the Hornite and Tobiah the servant and the Amorite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Now, these guys come up a lot in this story, and, and here's what their issue is. They uh, are religious leaders. Uh, they are, are Jewish people. They love Israel. They love Jerusalem. So why don't they want the walls rebuilt? What is their issue with another Israelite coming back to help rebuild the walls, because they are going on the prophecy in Isaiah that says that the king, that God's city, the, the new Jerusalem, will be a city without walls for all nations and all tongues. And so they're they're saying, well, the walls are down. This must be God fulfilling His kingdom, His promise. So we can't rebuild the walls right now. Of course, Nehemiah understands that that's that's a future kingdom, not the kingdom that's here right now. But their issue is, no, 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 the Bible says that God's city will be without walls, so we can't put the walls up. So that's why they're they're, they're not just jerks. That's their issue behind it. They have some reasoning. Now their reasoning is wrong, 
But that's the reason. Now look at verse number 7. I'm sorry, verse number 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night and I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon wall, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed by fire. Then I went to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the brook, and viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned. And the rulers knew not whether... I went or what I did, neither has I yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that there be no more reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was a good upon me, uh, and also as also the king's words that had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sambalat the Hornite and Tobiah the servant of the, Am- the Ammonite, the Geshem and the Abraham heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Then answered I, to, then I answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Chapter 3. Then Eliasib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests. They built the sheep gate, and they sanctified it, and set up the doors of it, even unto the tower of Mia. And they sanctified it to the tower of Hananel. Then, uh, and next to him builded the men of Jericho, and next to them builded Zachor, the son of Imri. But the fish gate did not the sons of Hezani build, but also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and the lock thereof, and the bars thereof. And next unto them repaired Mimaroth, the son of Uriah, the son of Kaz, and next to them repaired uh, Mishulam, the son of Berchia, the son of that guy, and next to them repaired Zadok, the son of Bena. And next to them, the Tikites repaired, but their nobles put their neck, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. Moreover, the old gate repaired Jehoiada and the son of Paesh and that guy, the son of, of B. I'm, y'all can't read these names either, so I'm just going to go ahead and read them, you know, as best I can. Uh, they laid the beams thereof and set the doors thereof and locks thereof and the bars thereof. And next to them repaired Mel, uh, the Gibeonite and Jaden, the Amiranite and the men of Gibeon and of Mish- to the throne of the governor uh, on this side of the river. Next to him repaired Uziel, the son of, of that guy, of the goldsmiths. Next to him also repaired Hananiah, the sons of one of the apothecaries, and they fortified Jerusalem unto the broad wall. Now, if you're not careful, and we just read a bunch of stuff, and you're probably thinking, why is he reading these names? What does it matter? Who, who built what wall? Who built the fish gate? And who wants to live by the dung gate? And, you know, I don't know if you want to live by the dung gate. Uh, I did a lot of study on it. There's, there's nothing that I can find that makes a dung gate a dung gate. But, I mean, who wants to say, hey, where do you live? I live by the dung gate. Nobody wants to say that. But, you know, what does it matter? Who, what does it matter who, who built what or who said what or who went where? And so we can get lost in kind of just the names and what is happening with the building project. And we've got to understand here, though, God in the book of Nehemiah is giving us a simple path to follow as we return to a relationship with Him, as we grow in our maturity with God. This is the path of maturity. It starts with compassion. It leads to prayer that ultimately leads us to action. See, these are not... We're not just to be a people who have compassion about something that's happened, and we pray about that thing that happened, but we are to get involved and do something about what God has laid on our heart. God wants us to be a people that act. And if we refuse to act on what God has laid on our heart, it shows us and it shows everyone around us that we are not maturing in our relationship with God. So according to the book of Nehemiah, the verses we just went, went through, 
How do we do that? How do we become a people that act? Well, I've got one point, but don't get excited. We're going to flesh that point out. So how do we become a people that are moving and acting on what God's in our heart? Number one, we are a people that are marked by truth. Connor, next slide. We are a people who are marked by truth. See, the foundation of discipleship, the foundation of growing in a relationship with God is not what we do in this room. Too many believers, too many Christians think that, well, if I'm, if I'm faithful to go to church and I go to the worship service and I get in a big room with other believers, that's Christian maturity. That is, is growing in a relationship with God. See, true discipleship doesn't happen in big rooms, in rooms like this. You can hide in a room like this, and a lot of you do. You come in after the service has started. You slip into the back. You sing a couple songs. As soon as the service is over, as soon as I say amen, you're out the door. You came to church. You sung some songs. You listened to the preaching, but you didn't really get involved in anything. You didn't really fellowship with anybody. You may have waved. You may have said hi on your way out, but you didn't really do anything. See, discipleship doesn't happen in, in rooms like this. You come in, you pay attention, you leave unchanged. True transformation. True Christian maturity. True discipleship happens in small rooms. Because you can't hide in a small room. Now, the baseline of spiritual maturity is being known by others and truly knowing them. Now, a lot of you, you're probably thinking, oh, he's just talking about growth groups. He's trying to get us to come to growth group. And he's trying to get us to make sure we come to Sunday morning, uh, Sunday school. And he's trying to make sure we come to Sunday night. Look, those are all vital and those are important. And if you're not, you should. And I'm not here saying, hey, no, 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 no. No, if you're not coming to those things and you're not faithful, you need those things. So I'm not here saying, no, that's not what I'm saying. Those are important, but that's not really my main point or what I'm focusing on. Those are important, but gospel-centered community. Being honest, being marked by truth means that we are a people who understand and who view our community Differently, we view our community through the lens of the gospel. God's people are rough people. They're gritty people. Look at the Bible. Look at God's people in the Bible. Every hero of the faith has some major issue. They're, they're, they're liars. They're adulterers. They're murderers. You know, I'm reading, as you're going through the year, I'm reading through the Bible chronologically. And, you know, I finished it up, Genesis, and I saw, you know, looking at Abraham, how Abraham twice lied about his relationship with Sarah because he was scared that people would hurt him because Sarah was so... Be and look, when you read that, you got to realize the second time Abraham does that, Sarah is 75 years old. She's a smoking hot 75-year-old. Because he's like... She may be old, but she got it going on. And if they think she's my wife, they're going to kill me so they can steal her. So he says, she's my sister. Now, he's not really lying because she was his half-sister, which, you know, ew. But again, early on in Scripture, it's okay right now. Uh, but anyway, so he didn't, he didn't really outright lie. He just kind of told a half-truth, but he didn't trust God. So he lied about his relationship. One time allowed, his, allowed Sarah to be taken by another man as his wife. Second time, God stopped that from happening. But then you read on, and guess what? Abraham's son did the exact same thing. He gets to a place with his wife, Rachel, and says, Man, she's so pretty. If, if they know she's my, my wife, they're going to kill me again. Doesn't trust God. So he lies. And you, you look at these people, it's like, how can you, as a, as a, as a husband, as a man... If I'm going somewhere that I'm afraid if these people know she's my wife, they're going to kill me to steal her. 
so I better say she's my sister so they can still... I'm like, no, you're going to have to kill me. You want her, you're going to have to go through me. So I look at it, I'm like, how, how could his husband do that? Abraham, how could you do that? You look at David who's, who commits adultery and, and murder to hide it. You look at all these people, like, man, they had messed up, broken lives. That's what God's people are. The church is supposed to be made up of people who are, are kind of rough. We're kind of gritty. We have pasts that are hard, but we're walking with God. See, by nature, we rebel against God. You were born in sin, a rebel against God. Now, you're saved now, Christ is your Savior. So now you're adopted into the family of God. But here's the thing, you still have that flesh that battles the spirit in you that still wants to rebel against God. That still wants to go your way and do it your way and have things instead of what God wants you to do. See, the gospel shows us that we are all sinners. We are all unworthy. We are all undeserving. For we all fall short of God's glory. There's only been one perfect man to ever live, and that was Jesus. He came as God in the flesh. He lived a perfect, sinless life because we could not. He died in our place on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God for our sin. He was buried and rose again three days later to redeem us to God the Father. He is the only sinless person who ever lived. Everybody else is a sinner. That includes me, and that includes you. But here's the thing, Jesus did that. He lived a life we couldn't live. He died in our place and rose again, not because we were so awesome, not because we were so deserving, but because He's so awesome. Because of His love for us, He did for us what we could never did. Here's what I'm trying to say. You need to understand how broken you really are. How messed up you really are. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, well, I, I got it all together. I'm, I'm not, I don't have any huge debilitating sin in my life. I don't have any, I didn't, I've never committed adultery. I've never committed murder. I've never lied about my relationship with my wife to protect myself. You know, I don't have any huge glaring sin in my Great. Praise God for that because it has nothing to do with you. No matter how good you think you are, you're still a sinner. You still fall short of God's glory. You, we fall short before salvation, and even after salvation, we still fall short because after salvation, we still sin. Here's what I'm saying that. You are no better than anybody else. And don't ever think you are. And it's easy for us to do that. We're sitting here in church this morning. We, all, we got up. When, when the weather predicted ice, and, and, and freezing rain, you still got up, got dressed, and came to church. You could have stayed home and said, well, the, the, the weatherman said it may have a piece of snowfall at 11 o'clock, so I better stay home so I don't wreck my car. You know how I know you could have done that? Because this morning I got up, and it took me a while before I left the house, because I'm sitting here watching the radar going, Lord, if, if you're going to make it snow, let me know now so I can cancel. So you wanted to cancel? Yes, I want to. I want to stay home and sleep just like as much as y'all do on Sunday morning. But I can't. I got to come unlock the door and preach to you people. But hey, on a snowy, on a day predicting snow, you got up, you got dressed, you came to church, you're here, you sang the songs, you prayed, you're all dressed nice, and it's easy for us in this position to look at people down here at the Miracle Motel who are waking up hungover or strung out, or selling themselves to get, the next, to get the next fix, it's easy for us to look at them and say, I can't believe they would do that. I would never. Don't ever look down at somebody and think, I'm better than them, because you're not. You may have made better choices, and thank God for that, not you. It's not because you're so awesome. It's because the Lord God's grace and mercy is on you. But I always remind myself, I am just three or four bad decisions for being in a place I could never imagine being. 
I can read stories about pastors who get caught in, you know, fall in sin. I hate that phrase, they fell into sin. No one falls into adultery. You're not walking around, I'm fa- Oh, look, oops, I didn't mean it. No, 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 no. You didn't fall into sin. You willingly, eagerly went right towards it. But it's easy for me to look at them and say, I can't believe they would do that. I would, I would never. But I'm, nope, I'm just a few bad decisions away from throwing my life away for God. Don't ever think you're better than anybody else because that's not what the Bible says. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to remind you of what the Bible says about you. Now, in case you're like, man, this is a a miserable sermon, that's great news. It is good news to know you're a lousy, worthless, messed up sinner who falls short of God's glory. Why? Because that frees me up from having to be perfect. Because I know I'm not perfect. I know I don't got to be perfect. Because I can't be perfect. Because God says I'm never going to be perfect. See, and that means I don't have to pretend to have it all together. And I've never tried to do that. My Christian history is growing up in churches where the pastor was put on a pedestal as kind of the ultimate epitome of Christian living. And he was this Christian hero that we would strive to be like because we could never be like him. And so, man, we're going to... And you know what? That's terrible because when those men fell, and they all fell, it hurt everybody they run. So I've, since day one, I've stood up, since I started New Horizon 12 years ago, I have said, I'm messed up. I'm, I, I ain't got it all together. And I'm never, I am a broken, messed up believer following a healing Savior, just follow me with Him. That, that relieves me of the pressure of trying to pretend to be something I'm not. It relieves you of the pressure too. You don't have to pretend that you're this perfect Christian. Because I know you're not. And you know you're not. And hopefully everyone else around you knows you're not. See, the gospel tells me that I am less than I think I am. Which means I don't have to try so hard to impress you. That's freeing. That is liberating. But it also helps me look at other people differently. It helps me realize, yeah, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I just, I have a healing Savior, I have a Holy Spirit convicting me and remind, and smacking me on the back of the head every time I'm messed up, saying, hey, get back on the right path with God. And so, yeah, I'm a messed up sinner, and they're a messed up sinner, I just have the Savior, so I need to give it to them. Helps me look at people differently. See, God doesn't just tell me I'm a mess, He tells me everybody's a mess. Which is why it always it's so baffling to me that so many believers pretend to be godly. They get they waste so much time and energy pretending to be godly instead of just pursuing godliness. See, that's exhausting. Because look, you may you may fool everyone you know, but you're never gonna fool God. So why pretend to be something that God knows? You are not. So here's what I'm trying to get at. I'm not sitting here saying, hey, since you're messed up, you can just go live your life any way you want to do. Smoke, drink, run around, do whatever, because you're a mess. No, 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 here's what I'm saying. Being honest with myself, being marked by truth, means I know I'm a sinner, so confession and repentance should be a regular part of my walk and my life with God. I should be a person who is constantly confessing my sins and going to God for forgiveness and repentance. Confession should be a regular part of the believer because as I'm regularly confessing my sins and my struggles and my shortcomings before God, it helps me view everyone else through a gospel lens. I see the community around me as fallen uh, short of God's glory, and that includes me. Now... Despite how wicked I am, and I know I am, despite me, God loved me. God came for me. God lived for me. He died instead of me and rose for me. Not because I deserved it. Not because I could earn it. But because He is, 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 is holy. He 
is righteous. So I don't celebrate how great I am. We are celebrating how great God is. See, the church is not supposed to be filled with perfect, polished people. It should be filled with broken, messed up, grimy people, because that's what we all are. Now, we may be further along in our walk with God. We may be further along in our maturity with God. And some of the stuff we struggled with 10, 15 years ago, we don't struggle with now. But never forget where you came from. Never forget. Yeah, I got, I, I'm, I'm doing okay now. But man, I was a messed up person then. And if I, if I stop walking with God, I can be that again. So I'm going to show grace and mercy to those around me. See, the more the light, the gospel goes out, the more grimy people come into this light of Jesus Christ. So being marked by truth is realizing, no matter how far along you are in your walk with God, you're a sinner. And you're a few bad decisions away from one in your life. You're a saved sinner, but you're still a sinner. First John 1 says, If we say then that we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie, and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, and cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Seeing be marked by truth means we are aware of our sin and our need to confess our sin to God. The Gospel says that the church is a safe place for you to be honest with yourself and honest with others and confess your sins because we're all sinners. We're all broken. We're all messed up. Despite who we are, God loves us and He rescued us. And so that's where we go from these big rooms of worshiping together and hearing together to small rooms of being honest with ourselves and honest with other people. We can be honest with others about our sins and about our shortcomings because we're honest with ourselves. See, Martin Luther said the Christian life is marked by the repentance for the believer. Repentance, confession to God, and confession with other believers is being marked by honesty because you are letting other people in to your struggles. That leads to accountability to letting others into your mess so you can get involved in the mess of other people. And that leads to maturity. See, maturing in Christ, maturing in my walk with God, means that I confess my weaknesses to God. I realize I fall short all the time. And that opens me up to be honest with you. To say, yeah, I may be the pastor, but man, I messed up. I fall short, so it's okay for you to fall short. Let's just help each other overcome these shortcomings. I'll be honest with you, you be honest with me, I can pray with you, you can pray with me, I can get involved in your mess, you can get involved in my mess, and we hold each other accountable, and we mature in our relationship, in our walk with God. Now look, that's discipleship, that helps us both grow in a relationship with God. But that's not easy. We don't like being that honest with other people. We're, we're a back porch, privacy fence kind of culture. We like to keep people at an arm's length. And we, we see that in, our, in, our, in our, you know, our, our social media culture. We keep everyone at arm's length. The average person, I read this week, the average person has 338 Facebook friends. How many of them are actually your friends? None of them. None of us put on Facebook how bad we have it. You know, you go out tomorrow and you're driving to work and you get stuck in traffic and you just absolutely lose it and start cussing a blue streak. Telling people they're number one but with the wrong finger all the time. You're not posting that live stream on Facebook going, this is what I'm feeling! Blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. You'll be posting, oh, God blessed me today. Prayed for me. We never put our mess on Facebook. We put the, the best out there. See, uh, you know, and here, here's, and that, that's not true friendship. That's not how we 
mature in relationships or with God. This, this past, or the 13th, last Sunday, or two Sundays ago, I don't know, uh, I'm getting too old, uh, was my birthday. I had over 60 people wish me happy birthday on Facebook. You know how many of them really matter to me? Just about 10 or 15, y'all. The people that know me. The people that do life with me. You know, that guy that I went to high school with that I haven't talked to in 20 years, his happy birthday doesn't mean nothing to me. That's why I am a terrible Facebook friend because i got people wishing me happy birthday every year that I never wish him happy birthday. Because guess what? I don't care about you. You, you, you mean not? You're a Facebook friend. You are on my friends list because either... I, I just I, usually it's because we're associated some way, and it'd be bad if I got rid of you. Or you're a cousin who you're, my mom would get mad, so I put you on Facebook and I block you, so I never see anything you do. You know, my Facebook feed really has like eight people that I get to see because everybody else is blocked because I don't really want to get involved in their lives. When I had surgery back in January, I had all kinds of people reach out through Facebook praying for you, hope you're feeling better, but most of them didn't matter to me except the people who I know love me. Y'all who I know pray for me regularly saying, hey, I'm praying for you. Anything I can do for you? The ones that I have true relationship with are the only ones that, that matter to me. The rest, they don't matter because you know what? They're not in the mud with me. They're not, getting, they're not coming in the mud with me saying, hey, I'm pretty dirty, you're pretty dirty, let's try to help each other get out of this mud. They're living their life and I have nothing to do with them. They don't matter to me. When I had, you know, what matters is the people who I do relationship with. See, doing life with other believers is how transformation begins. And we can only do life with them if we're honest with ourselves about who we are and honest with them. Say, hey, you're in the mud, I'm in the mud. Let's try to get out of the mud. Instead of, you're in the mud, but I'm up here on higher ground, and I'm, I'm clean, and, and I could never dirty myself. No, no, no. It's, hey, I may not be as muddy as you, but I'm muddy. So let's just get out of this. Let's help each other. You know, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, is, 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 I, I love, he's one of my favorite theologians. Uh, and really, it's not because of his theology. I like some of his theology, but not all of it. But he was a, a German theologian, a German pastor in the 1930s and 40s. During World War II, he fled Germany and came to America. When he's in America, he went to an African-American church, and his mind was blown by how they praised God. He came from a very formal, high church kind of uh, religious background where they, they sung the, you know, the, the beat and they sung these high hymn songs and they didn't really praise God and then he got up and would read a liturgy and stuff. But he goes to this African American church and they are praising God and they are singing and they are, they are just, and it, it changed him. It changed how he worshiped God and he stayed in America, but he began to pastor and begin to talk about how we love God and praise God. And then as World War II drew on, he actually became part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. Went back to Germany to try to kill Hitler, got captured, and was killed for his efforts. But he's my kind of guy. He loves God. He loves to praise God. He wants to kill Hitler. He's a good dude. I want to be his friend. But here's what he said. He said, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty. If on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from which we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. Church, church fellowship is hard because it's full of sinners. From time to time, it's going to feel petty. From time to time, you're going to be disappointed. Don't be surprised when that happens because you are a sinner trying to connect, connect, trying to connect with other sinners for the purpose of sanctification. That sometimes sanctification, sometimes beautiful. 
Sometimes it's ugly. Because we are all a mess. But you are where you are because God placed you there for a purpose. Get rooted. Get involved. Stop complaining. And do the work. You know, the Bible tells us iron sharpens iron. If you've ever sharpened a blade, as you are working it on the whetstone, you are actually removing material from the blade. You are scraping off metal. You are scraping off nicks and, 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 bad, and blemishes and bad spots to make the blade sharper. That is what discipleship is. It is being honest with yourself. Remove, rubbing against other believers who are honest to remove those rough spots, to rub off those rough edges. If all you do is complain about the rough edges of other people, you're never going to grow and you're only hurting the church. But you're also hurting yourself. It stops God's ability to mature you, to grow in fellowship with you. Look, some of you, y'all do this well. You are honest with yourselves. You are honest with others. You get in the mud of people's lives. You get involved. You pray with them. You mourn with them. You help them. You encourage them. You do it great. Some of you are just watchers. You watch everyone else, but you keep everyone at an arm's length. That's never going to help you mature in your relationship with God. Maybe you're here because you like the preaching. Maybe you're here because you've always come here and that's what just what you do. Those things will not sustain you in the day of trouble. And I'm here to tell you, the day of trouble is coming for every single one of us. You're either in the day right now, you just came out of the day of trouble, or you're going into one. And if you, when that happens, when the day of trouble comes, you're keeping other believers at an arm's length and trying to pretend you're something that you're not is never going to help you. The road to returning to God has a lot of steps on it. It starts with compassion. Seeing the hurt of other believers. Seeing the lost state of the world and being broken over them. Being heartbroken and mourning over the pain that people are going through. Being heartbroken over the fact that most people that we know in our lives, most people around us today are unsaved and lost and dying and headed to hell. It is being heartbroken over it. But then it leads us to pray and beg God to use us to do something. But then we get involved. We have to get in the mud with them. To do that, you've got to be honest with yourself. Honest that, yeah, they're in the mud, but I am too. Honest about your hurts, your pains, your shortcomings, your sins. That's where discipleship starts. It starts with being honest with yourself and then honest with other believers. Can we do that? Can we be honest enough to say, I'm just a broken person following a healing Savior. You're broken too. Let's try to walk with them together. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.